Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is a great episode on The Pretty Good House, and I'm really excited to have both Bob Swinburne and Dylan Kinsey on to talk about a pretty good house that they designed built in Vermont. So everybody wants to hear more about people who are actually building pretty good houses out there. So um, Dylan, why don't you tell us who you are uh, and how you got into this? All right, well, thank you for having me. Great to see you both. I, I'm, my name is Dylan Kinsey, and I, I'm with Kinsey Construction up here in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, and I've been a builder for many, many years, the son of a builder, and I got into building uh, this type of building and sort of started learning how to do it in 2015, was the first super insulated building that we did in Woolcott, Vermont, not far from where I live, uh, and this was before I had any real formal training in, in any of the high-performance arts. Um, and so my house is sort of a culmination of four or five years of learning how to do this and starting to meet all the right people in the industry. And I didn't really know that I was building a pretty good house until about halfway through. And I thought, oh, I think this is actually one of those houses that, we're, that I've been hearing about. You know? And so I, I got linked up with Bob Swinburne, who's going to introduce himself in a second, um, <laughs> and, um, who helped us figure out um, uh, a whole slew of things that we didn't have figured out about how to do this building. Um, and um, here we are, two, you know, two and a half years have, having lived in this building and uh, know what it's like and know what it's like to put it together and live in it. So that's me. Awesome. I can't wait to hear about what it's been like to live in it, right? Because a lot of times we'll present a pretty good house right after it's been built. So it's really exciting that you've been living in it for the last couple of years. Yeah, so Bob, you helped out on this project as sort of a design build uh, relationship. So tell us again who you are. People have heard you on the podcast a bunch, but remind everybody who you are and and uh, how you got connected. Sure. Uh, I'm Bob Swinburne, architect in outside of Brattleboro, up in the hills outside of Brattleboro. So I'm in the kind of the other end of the state uh, from Dillon. And um, I am at this point, very much involved with the Pretty Good House movement and a whole bunch of other things. Um, this, yeah, I don't, I don't remember how Dylan actually came to me, but um, this was a project where um, I was just, I consider myself more of a consultant on this project. I'm looking at the drawings. I only had three pages of drawings. Um, so he certainly got the best bang for the buck out of what I can do. So. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But that's part of the pretty good house too, though, right? Is that maybe it's not always that you've done a, a full design. Um, maybe it's that you have somebody like yourself, Bob, or an energy consultant, a hers rater, a passive house consultant who helps you kind of take your ideas and get to this level, right? So pretty good house. Um, isn't meant to be a, a metrics that you you have to hit certain targets. It's meant to be like, how do we be build the best enclosure and house that we can, you know, for for the money that we have to spend. Um, so for those of you listening on the podcast, I encourage you to hop over to the YouTube channel to see, um, we're going to share some pictures and visuals of this project as well. Um, but since this is a podcast, we're going to talk through the ideas. So um, 
if you want to see photos of the house that we're talking about today, pop on over to the YouTube channel. But so Dylan, when you got started, you, you and your family had an idea. So what was your, your goal or your concept here uh, with your idea? Yeah, well, so as I said at the intro, you know, we had built um, a, a few super insulated buildings. And actually the first one that we built won an award in 2016 at uh, uh, Efficiency Vermont's Better Buildings by Design Conference for Best of the Best, which was, I was so excited because I think that's the furthest north. I could see at the, at the right after the keynote presentation, there's a map of Vermont. And there's this little red dot at the very tippy top of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And that was our project. It was one of the first, I think, certified high performance projects in that area, as to my knowledge. So we had a few of these uh, behind us at that point. And knowing that we were going to build uh, our own house and been, had been working on it, boy, am I glad I waited a few years because I would have done so many things wrong, dip, you know, what I would call wrong now. Um, and so the vision was like, well, we live in this neighborhood of old farmhouses and a little red schoolhouse with a, with a belfry. And I grew up in a Cape, you know, a farmhouse style house. And I, you know, I, it was kind of my first love. And I just thought, well, can't we make this work? You know, can't we, can't we do a house that looks like it belongs here? That looks, looks right in the landscape and fits in with its neighbors because it's fairly visible. It's a little ostentatious where we decided to place it. And so it was kind of important to me to, that it didn't look really odd, you know, compared to its neighbors. So, and so through some mutual friends, um, I quickly realized that Bob was a great fit because he was doing buildings that looked like this. And we went to see one of them. And so I thought, oh, well, it's not like it hasn't been done. This is a really cool version of what I'm talking about. And it was so, actually the building that we visited was so close to what we were trying to do that it was a, it was a natural fit. For us to work with Bob. Yeah, I think that was that's one of the things that the high performance home industry has gotten knocked on is that there are a lot of boxes and there are a lot of um, you know super modern things in the realm of high performance and there are a lot of people who are really interested in you know the details of the old houses and how they worked and trying to figure out how to do both and bob does a great job of this with the vermont simple house and with his you know uh, his custom design projects and so when i saw this and i took a look at it i said oh that looks like one of bob's vermont it simple does. houses so it does <laughs> So let me just cover real quick um, for, for those who are watching this, um, and if you're listening to it instead, there, there are a few things I wanna highlight. Um, the house is 1750 square feet. Uh, it's two bedrooms with a full basement. Your foundation insulation was five inches of XPS uh, R30 on the inside of the walls. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then five inches of EPS foam under the slab, double stud wall, uh, that's 12 inches deep with approximately R42 of dense packed cellulose, a vented unconditioned attic, and R85 cellulose on the uh, attic floor. You have a blower door of 0.32 ACH, so you, you, uh, you worked hard at that one. Uh, <laughs> clear wall, triple glazed windows. Um, your design temperature was negative 5 degrees in Vermont. Your heating load is... Uh, 16,579 BTUs per hour. Uh, and your space heat is a uh, Mitsubishi single zone ductless mini split air source heat pump 
uh, rated at 20,000 BTUs. Uh, you have a 40 gallon state brand heat pump hot water heater and a Brone ERV and a 6.7 kW PV array on the roof. Uh, so there's a whole bunch more information on here if you uh, wanna go to the slide and actually look at it. But those are some of the simple things that you, you tried to achieve um, here in the South, or not tried to achieve, obviously you did, this is what you built. <laughs> so um, I, let's, let's start at, at the, the, uh, the size and the number of bedrooms. Um, so the push for me in the real estate market is that everybody needs three bedrooms, two and a half baths and 2,500 square feet. So how did you decide that that wasn't really what you wanted for your family? Yeah, you know, I, uh, we tried to make this thing smaller than that. And the reason I'm calling it 1750 is that uh, due to the, the knee walls upstairs on, on the east side, so you can see that you can't stand up full height for several feet toward the sides of the building. And so I sort of slice a piece of that off and figure that's not countable, usable space. How, but if you want to multiply both floor decks, you know, uh, or, or the floor deck by two, you'd get more like 2000 square feet or just over. So. <clears throat> We tinkered with, and maybe we, I don't remember if Bob was in on this, uh, the, the 26 by 34 building. This is a 28 by 36 building. Um, it was just a little tight. We probably could have pulled it off. We had, um, we don't have kids and we don't have any dogs. We have one cat and we were both trying to run businesses out of this house. Um, my wife is a massage therapist. So we were trying to figure out how do we move the massage office to the house? Can we do it? Can we do it all in one building? And that was, this is what we came up with. We thought I could, well, you know, we'll have the business office downstairs, which Bob helped us uh, arrange. And I didn't have that figured out well at all. Um, that was kind of what our goal was. Can we run both businesses out of this house and live in it and get as many things right as possible without obsessing too much because you can't get it all in, in one building. And can we retire in this building? Well, we have to put an addition on it with a, you know, to put a bedroom downstairs if we get too old to go upstairs maybe, but probably not, you know, there's probably a way to remodel it. So that's kind of how we got to the size. Yeah. And to, um, makes total sense how you got to the 1750 with the knee walls on the upper floor. Um, and I want to ask about how you insulated that. And if you insulated along the, the rafter slopes and have conditioned storage space or whether you did sort of across the ceiling and up the knee wall walls. Um, but before we get to that, um, when you say 1750 and that it's a 28 by 36, um, you're actually talking exterior, right? So, so I get this question a lot. The okay. exterior footprint of this house is 28 by 36. Correct. Uh, yes. Which means that when you take your 12 inch walls out of that, because this is a double stud wall construction, you actually right. have even less square footage than, you know, than what you sort of supplied here with the 1750. Um, so you're, you're moving towards even smaller and you know we have to get creative a lot of times with the double stud balls because they take up a lot of space so um a couple things in terms of size yeah we have 12 inch thick walls so whether you measure from the inside or the outside you get a pretty different number i like to measure from in between so for instance this is what 28 by 36 which is the equivalent of a 27 by 35 um code minimum house so you know for comp comparing that's a, probably a more useful number also in terms of floor plan this is what we ended up for this project within this same shell i probably could have fit four bedrooms um so you know this was the fit for their family 
and we worked through that um, quite a bit, really. But I can take, you know, any good designer can take this floor plan and turn it into any number of different things. And it was really a process of, yeah, we were a little bit smaller before, and there were some slightly tight spots, but you can, and this is part of the pretty good house philosophy, you can expand it a little bit. You know, we always talk about shrinking, but you can actually expand it. You end up with the same number of windows, mostly all the same pieces and parts. So it's not necessarily costing more, but you know, it makes it just that much more livable. And so people would be less likely to need to add on in the future. You know, it becomes a little more flexible for other occupants down, you know, over the next several hundred years. So, you know, the looseness of that pretty good house philosophy comes into play here. Yeah, that's a great point um, too, is that once you've kind of created a simple shape, you know, adding another foot to it so that the spaces actually work um, generally doesn't add a considerable amount of money. So, you know, one of the things that I hate to talk about is, you know, cost per square foot, because it's not really relative. Once you have a kitchen, once you have a bathroom, if your bedroom gets a foot larger, it's not another $350 a square foot for the bedroom, right? And there are, there are, scales. Obviously, if you go from 1700 square feet to 2500 square feet, you're going to pay a lot more. You just have a lot more materials. But generally, to add a little bit of space like that to make the rooms work better, you know, like you said, it was a little too tight. I can't imagine that if you had tried to do 26 feet, you just wouldn't have an office or your living room would be so small that you, you know, we all have you know, this idea that we can live with less space and we certainly can, um, but there's less space and then there's completely unusable space. <laughs> so, yeah, right. As we're trying to do that. So uh, we, we have to be cognizant of um, creating space that just doesn't work at all. So were there other challenging challenges to the Cape design um, that you found were difficult to work with um, when you were when you were building this, um, it's it's a beautiful traditional cape looking house, um, and capes are you know a, an older style with the challenges like we talked about with the with the knee wall spaces. But for, from your perspective as a builder, were there places here when you were trying to hit these energy targets like the 0.32 ACH fifty? Um, were there areas that you said, well, this is what we did on this house and it worked and I learned, but I wouldn't do that again. Um, let's see, you know, this one was pretty easy to do. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything that really stood out as far as um, air leak, you know, air leakage targets that was really difficult. Um, not, not, not so much. I mean, one thing that really saved it was Bob talking us out of having a dormer, you know, and I knew better, but having a dormer to facilitate the, uh, the bathroom upstairs, you know, we had a shed dormer uh, kind of in the middle of the back of the roof um, on the other side from what we're looking at now. And uh, Bob cleverly, you know, with our blessing engineered that out. And I knew that was a better idea not to have it. That would have made things so much more complicated. 
Yeah, you can see in the plan where he pushed the bathroom in far enough that you can, you know, you can get the space that you needed in the bathroom without having a head height issue, which does right. make some of your other rooms a little bit smaller. But as you mentioned, this is an office for your family, so that works. But it's also not so small that um, that you couldn't have um, room for a bed or something in the future if you, you know, oh. you you create these different closet spaces and areas that you that you need to to address that now you have a full basement here um and you have what i saw it looks like a, a bulkhead entry mm -hmm. um, into your into your basement um did you put a door at the bottom of your bulkhead <laughs> yeah, yeah i did you know that might be something i would avoid in the future i think once the house is built um i'm realizing i don't really go through that door for any reason it was really handy while you're while we were building um, we stored the, the whole siding package and trim package down there after I pre-stained something, you know, the trim. Um, I built a really wacky, uh, super insulated door, uh, that's held on with clamps and it's really cool, but it was fussy and it took me a while. So I have a swinging door, a fiberglass door with no glass. And then this super insulated panel that I, that I outfitted to sort of make it go away. And really, I have not been through that more than three or four times in a couple of years. So. I would have just gotten rid of that, I think, if I'd done this over. Yeah. I, I mean, now that I hear you say that you have a door at the bottom of the stairs and you have an insulated cover that goes over it, it makes it clear how you could get to point three two. Because I'm looking at the photo going, there's a bulkhead door? How'd they get that sealed tight enough, right? Because those uh -huh. are always one of those crazy leaky spots that you, totally. you just... <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also looking at the front of your house now in this picture and it has your PV array, which is great. And so I'm assuming that the 6.7 KW PV array does most, if not all of your needs for this house. Yeah, we were, we overused by about 52 kilowatt hours in the, in the year measuring from like, <laughs> I know. From, from like so a excessive yeah, i know these two are like you know we're hollering <laughs> each other all right that's one less shower you know I mean, so. no more afternoon coffee you use too much <laughs> right. electric that's right we're going to bed early for a month you know whatever it takes so. <laughs> um i found with all of our neat little apps and the end phase box uh and um interface and the um uh, what's the app I have on my phone for energy use? It was easier just to call my electric utility and say, could you just spit out my usage data and um, solar production? And it took about five seconds and I had an entire year from the moment I was talking to her on the phone. Um, and I thought, oh, great, good. We're living pretty much within our, our estimates. We're, we're less than we thought we were gonna use overall and we're well within what the array um, was able to generate. So that's great. That's what we're looking for. Um, yeah, so you've lived in this house now for sounds like two years, um, yeah. and you you know you've basically proven that you're meeting the targets that you planned for for the array. Did you do an energy model on this beforehand, so you had kind of an idea of what to expect? Absolutely, I did. Yeah, and so um, I'm glad you, you you got to this because I've been dying to talk about um, how I, I went through the, the the passive house builder certification course was really super fun and. I learned a ton of much needed building science. Uh, it rounded out my education that I had begun a bunch of years before on Green Building Advisor and going to the conference and, and whatnot. But the thing that I got the most out of was Mark Rosenbaum's Zero Net Energy Homes course. That was 
crucial to me pulling together all of the pieces into one building. And this was my capstone energy project for that course. I had a lot of fun in that course and I learned a ton and it not just, like I said, it just brought everything together. And this building is a culmination of all of that, all of my experience as a builder from the previous projects and then all of that um, information. Um, and so the energy model that I, I learned how to do modeling, which I don't sell because I'm not, I don't think I'm good enough at it. Um, but, uh, it, and so that's where the, those are where those numbers came from. And this sheet that I sent uh, that you, that you had up on that slide, the first slide is a, a collection of numbers that came from that energy model. I just kind of scraped off the important ones. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what did you use for software for the energy model? It was an in-house uh, spreadsheet that the instructor had developed. Um, so we didn't use something off the shelf. It was something that Mark has, has used. Okay. Here's with the course. Yeah. Great. So it's, it's some kind of, you know, Excel spreadsheet or something that he put together that helped you to figure out. So, so very similar to uh, PHPP is a complicated Excel spreadsheet. Um, right. And I think that Wolfie and Ecotrope and REM design and Beopt and everything probably just have a fancy Excel spreadsheet in the background <laughs> with a slightly more user friendly interface <laughs> for people. Yeah. Yeah. That's like that. Yep. I think you're right. Yeah. And so on the house, you have the PV installed so that, um, so that you could add another row on here. Do you have the intention of, you know, building a garage and putting an electric car in, or were you simply thinking that, well, if we didn't get this quite right, we're going to install the PV so that we have room to <laughs> install another row in the future if we need it. Yeah, well, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, I, I was hoping, maybe I'm just lying to myself, that I wasn't concerned that we were going to, we were actually going to end up just using a lot more energy than we thought, you know. Um, but Mark's good. You know, his spreadsheet was pretty good. I mean, we really played around with, you know, not, you know, as he says, the garbage in, garbage out, which is like, if you're not really being honest about what you think you're going to be doing for one and actually do it for two, then none of this is going to work. So um, we did have a garage planned. It's really, really not very high on our list of priorities right now. And um, elect an electric car, certainly someday, which would warrant that bottom row. Right now, we don't really need it. So get caught yeah. up, get caught up financially after the build. And then we'll talk about those as next steps. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I just liked how you had your PV installed and I thought, well, that's, you know, that's really a clever way of, of leaving enough room for, for future expansion, whether it's, you know, a, a first floor bedroom, right? So you decide to, to live here for the rest of your life and 20 right. years from now you need a first floor bedroom, you have room to, you know, add a little bit more to it. Um, your, your mechanical system you talked about was a uh, 20,000 KBTU mini split. Do you have just one or do you have multiple heads? Just one head, actually. Um, much to the uh, disappointment and annoyance of our HVAC guy who, you know, insisted we probably ought to put two heads and, you know, they always do that, right? And they really, they're getting a little funny about us builders sort of like pushing back a little bit, like, oh, I don't think we really need to do that. And I'm going to check your homework. And they're like, oh, they get a little freaked out. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a small footprint. Um, it is plenty cozy just the way it is. It's really cozy in this house. And in fact, to get the kind of bedroom temperature we prefer, we close the bedroom door upstairs just so it's a little cooler. Um, um, so yep, that's it. It's a one-to-one, 
single zone. There is actually a unit when we were, when we bought this uh, heat pump, there was one that was a little bit smaller. I think it was an 18,000. And I think it was the same price. I don't remember what the deal was, but we were, you know, maybe I kind of compromised with our HVAC guy. Oh, okay. Well, we can make it a little bit bigger, but really, you know. Yeah, certainly that's a that's a big pushback that we get here in these low load homes is right. I have an eleven thousand kbtu uh, load, and you know I only need one heat pump head. And then they say, well, distribution we can't guarantee that there'll be even heat everywhere. Yeah. But um, and I, correct me, Bob, because I can never remember the correct term. Um, but people don't like it to be the same temperature in every room, right? <laughs> so there's this whole design idea that, like you just mentioned, I like it cooler in my bedroom. I don't want it to be quite as hot there. But then in these low load homes, I mean, you have our, what did you say, 85 in your ceiling? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, you, you, you've got, you're not losing a lot of heat. So you really don't need you don't need the excess heat. And then once you start setting it up, so there's distribution for every room, then you've already oversized your mechanical systems, which is one of the, you know, core things about pretty good houses to try to spend more on the building enclosure. So you can spend less on the mechanical system. Totally. And, um, Bob had a really handy uh, piece of equipment that he was using for little satellite rooms on some projects for uh, auxiliary heat. And it's this NV wall heater that we installed. Um, we have a few of them throughout the house. It turned out that it was handy to have one in the massage room because with the door closed and people disrobing and getting onto a table, 72 degrees is still not quite right. Um, and then you've had the door closed. So that's starting to sort of drift down to like maybe 70 or something. It needs to be good and warm in that room. So the NV does that room. It's perfect for that. Um, we put one in the bathroom also thinking, oh, I'll have it on a, a cheap little um, programmable timer. Maybe we'll need to juice up the bathroom or something. And I don't know what I was thinking, but there's no need for that at all because it's a doors open kind of house unless, you know, um, you know, well, the bathroom's in use or th there's a massage in progress or um, I don't know why it's really noisy and I close the office door, but mainly the doors are open, bedroom door closed during the day. So those are great little auxiliary heaters and they don't use much energy to take that little edge off. So you get a little warmer here and a little cooler over here. It's just turning the dials a little bit and it's not hard. Yeah. And so as you live in your house and you get comfortable with that and how everybody uses uses their space differently, right? You have a massage room, so you need to turn that up a little bit. But, you know, the next owner could have, a, you know, a small infant and want to turn it up there, right? Because, you know, they like to, they like to uh, ha keep it warmer. But then the next person could have a, a teenage kid and they want it to be 60 degrees and they leave the window open, right? So, right. so there's so many different ways, like you don't, need it to stay warm in your house, but sometimes you might want it to be comfortable in a space. And so it's good to hear that the, the MVs don't use a lot because, um, we get that pushback a lot, you know, like, Oh, uh, under tile electric floor mats and, you know, electric baseboards. And depending on how people are financing their project, sometimes the, um, the lending institution will give us pushback and say like, you have to, you know, you have to have heat in every bedroom. And you okay. kind of try to explain to them that that's not exactly how it works, <laughs> but we're, but we're, we're pretty set in our ways of, of how we do things. So, yeah. Um, yeah. 
maybe you had a little bit more leeway as the builder where you could really give it some pushback, but. Um, a little, a little, I do. It's good to check with your insurance company and lender on some of these little, little issues about like what they consider a heating system. There's been a little bit of pushback about, right. Is it, is it, uh, is it considered a whole house heating system or something like that? And what I was told by several insurance carriers um, is that if you have some electric baseboard kicking around, which we generally do as auxiliary uh, for, for sub-zero events, you're covered anyway, it's fine. Uh, we have a couple of strips downstairs on the, sorry, on the first floor as our auxiliary heat. And I have a six foot strip in the basement as auxiliary heat. I have sort of a little workshop down there. I have never used them, not once. And that's because it hardly ever gets that cold anymore. And so the heat pump has chugged through you know, for the last couple of years and not needed any of that, uh, uh, any help in that area. Um, yeah. So I've stayed on this slide because I wanted you to talk about the cat door. So how does the cat door work <laughs> with the 0.32 ACH? <laughs> well, this is a great story. Um, where did I find that cat door? Um, and what is the name of it? Oh, gee, you know, it's- Of a, course it, I had to ask that. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it, it is a blower door tested cat door. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of uh, the name of it. It's, uh, dang, I'll come up with it after this call. But anyway, there was a video that I found on some website where they are doing a blower door test with this cat door in it. And it's a company that makes a super airtight. It's got all the numbers that you would have on a high performance door or window. And I thought, oh, this is great because this is how this cat was raised and he's, you know, he was 10 and he was 12 and we moved into this house. He wasn't going to change his routine. And I thought, well, this is really cool. Not only because this is how we want to live. We want the cat to be able to do whatever he wants, but it, it's also, this is like normal house stuff and you can make this work in a building like this, but you can't do one of these off the shelf hardware store pet doors. They don't work. You'd never get this. So the blower door cranked up to, I don't remember what would not open this door in the video that I saw. And I thought, well, that's really great. It works and he can and the cat it. uses it and he uses it he complained a little bit when he, at first he was like well this is kind of hard to open he's really like what's this eye. thing I know, <laughs> it's huh? so difficult i missed the i missed the other one it was so easy to push through you know so um, <laughs> no it works great <laughs> yeah that that's awesome the the blower door cat door that's just door that's classic door. <laughs> <laughs> someone tested that um yeah. And so uh, a couple more things the, the, some interior pictures is, you know, mm -hmm. the, the clear wall windows, if people aren't familiar with clear wall windows, they're triple pane uh, tilt and turns. At least I assume they tilt as well as turn. It looks like they turn. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So how has it been living with the triple pane tilt and turn windows? Uh, it's amazing. You know, uh, there's only, it's funny, there's only a few of them that we really open I, um, in the summertime and uh, for venting and, um, we, you know, the first, uh, yeah, first year of all seasons, we overheated several times, usually in the spring or in the fall. And we're trying to figure out how to mitigate that a little bit. And um, having, a, having a window that opens like that in the summer is really nice. We prefer that uh, over running air conditioning, which we have on the first floor only. I think we've only ever run that unit on AC once. Um, um, it's amazing, you know, the, the big, thing is most of the most of the year in Vermont these are you know a big hole in your wall is losing heat right so a really good plug for that hole in your wall is worth the effort um, 
it's, you know, uh, we have furniture and a dining room table set up next to a pretty good sized bank of those windows. Um, and, you know, you could, with the wind howling outside, you can get, you can stand near it. Ima imagine this folks, you can stand near a window inside your house and not have any idea what the weather is doing outside unless the sun came out. And you certainly would feel that, but um, whether it's blowing, snowing, it doesn't really matter what temperature it is, you can't really tell. And I think that's kind of the part of the point. <laughs> so if you had it to do again, would you make less of them operable? I Maybe. Um, I might have just not had any at the kitchen operable. It turns out we don't really want those to open much anyway. One bummer about tilt turns, of course, is that they clear off whatever you have in the in the window well in the, in the sill area. So you have to kind of plan that out a little bit. If there are a bunch that are going to be full of plants, maybe you just have them fixed units and don't worry about it. But, but I think it's really key to keep people um, thinking about which ones um, are going to be really good cross ventilation uh, specific to their site. And there are two that we, two or three that we open and the back door or the screen door that are just wonderful in the summertime. Um, and then there are a bunch on the south side we would never open because the wind, the way the wind travels through this valley, it would just knock everything off the table. And so something to think about, but. Yeah, that's wow. definitely. And so you don't have to ask uh, or answer any uh, of the financial questions, but as far as triple pane windows, did you, uh, so in 2018, um, I don't know what the cost of the clear walls were. Um, I think I did a project with Clearwall in 2018 as well in Rochester, New York, and they were really trying to, to get cost competitive um, coming mm -hmm. into it. And so they, uh, for, for our project, they, they weren't uh, astronomical add to the cost, but mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to find there are some great triple pane manufacturers now that are that are getting to be available. If you have the time to wait for them, yeah. um, you know, because the lead time is is longer. Although the lead time in 20, 2020 and twenty twenty one has just been long for everything. So, for everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm happy to share that information because we did price several types, and I would say that these. So we did the whole building with the two doors that you see, which are you know seven and a half or eight feet tall, not, eight, not quite eight. Um, the only door we didn't do was the back door on the north side. Um, and I think we were pretty close to 30 grand and we could have done, so some of the other budgets we played with were um, Marvin Integrity's triple glazed, you know, uh, casement awning type, which is sort of, I kind of start out with those just to see what a building's going to turn into and then kind of work out from there. And then I think we looked at, um, Oh, geez, let's see, Pinnacle, let's see, it was Logic. We looked at Logic, which were UPVC. Those, were, I think all those were great options. I think probably the, the Integrities were the worst buy for, for, for the performance. I think that, and I think that's probably still the case. Um, we just put Shuko in the project that we're working on now in Greensboro, and they're definitely a step up from these LUPs that you see that are at my house just in terms of their function. I think the performance is slightly better, probably not better enough to warrant how much they spent because they're, they're spendier, uh, a little nicer in the operation. Um, these are fantastic. Uh, and it was, you know, probably 6,000 more, but you know, yeah. Well, I can go on and on about windows and doors. I'm sure we all can, but <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we could all talk about windows and doors. Wow. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should just stop there. You know, what really sold us was not just the performance. And yes, it was a little more money, 
it's kind of that last thing where like, yeah, this is one thing that we really want to be really well done. And so that's that decision that people have to make with their building. How, how much better than just baseline good triple glaze can I go, I guess. Well, and I think um, you have a really traditional uh, shape to your house, which warranted a certain number of windows, which maybe would have been more window to wall ratio than you would have done previously. And so being able to sit in your kitchen dining room area, which has a lot of beautiful windows and be really comfortable in that space um, can't be undervalued. Whether the performance was significant enough to save you the $6,000, probably not. But the comfort of sitting in that space every day is worth so much money um, and, and not something that we can kind of realize. But while we're talking windows, I'm actually going to go back to the section. Yeah. Um, oh, and of course, on the section. Uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, put the other section that you had in here, but um, from the photos that we're looking at, it looks like you set your windows to the exterior. Um, is that where you installed the windows in the wall system uh, in your double stud wall? Yeah. Yeah. That's, we've pretty much always done that. Um, I'm, I'm a little uh, stuck in my, stuck in my ways. And when it comes to that one, I think um, the wall system and then, and having the windows out pretty much flush with the sheathing or flush to the strapping. Seems like just a really straightforward way to do things. And I, I, I can, I know that the performance is, has been, is known to be slightly better if they're moved in a little bit. I think Bob pushed to have my doors, the two clear wall doors pushed in and I didn't. And, you know, I, yeah, we typically push them all the way out. That's pretty traditional in uh, in double stud construction is to set it sort of in the exterior and have uh, have those deep window sills in the interior, which is another one of those things that it's, you know, it's a personal decision people really like, um, mm -hmm. you know, over time with these new high performance windows. And I don't know if you had it with the Shukos, um, we've installed Shukos on the exterior and we've installed Shukos on the, in the middle of the wall system. And when mm -hmm. you put them in the middle of the wall system, um, it, it feels like a slightly safer <laughs> installation method. So uh -huh. when you installed these on the exterior, do, do the clear walls come with a flange and were you able to tape them like a traditional flange window or did you have to tape over, uh, uh, the flangeless window and then what did you use for your window installation yeah so um we'd never installed windows like this before and it was a little bit of a challenge getting some decent instruction out of out of the company but they've got a strap that rotates 90 degrees onto a channel on the side right and so you tape directly to the aluminum on the outside to your air barrier so you i needed to go around with i made a little scribe tool to make a little pencil line where to tape to on the outside tape the outside of the air barrier. Um, and then the same on the inside, you tape over all of the little straps, metal straps, and then you tape to a line on the inboard side also after putting something in the cavity, the insulation cavity. Um, yeah, uh, it's in, in some ways it was a lot easier. We actually, they're so heavy that we took the sashes out of the operables and put the frames in solo and then pop the sashes back in. Um, and then on there's a there's a there are two triple gangs in the building that uh, the center uh, sashes are fixed. We couldn't remove those, but, but still it was much more manageable. We set those without the side sashes and then put the sashes back in. Um, and so the I, sashes were relatively easy to get in and out to do that no, for install. No, they weren't. <laughs> the first was, <laughs> the first is a real bummer, and you you needed some help because they're really heavy. And 
But once you get that down, you you know you realize um, that yeah, it's manageable. You learn an awful lot about the hardware after playing with it for a while. Unfortunately, it was January when we were doing this because I ordered mine too late because I was busy building other houses, and so it was not the most fun type time of year to have a building wide open with your gloves off, fiddling around with hardware and um, Allen keys and things. But um, so I recommend that you order your windows earlier. <laughs> I think that's a traditional issue uh, with all builders and architects, whether you live in an existing house or whether you build your house, right? Your house is always like the last thing that you get to. I know Bob and I both live in older houses that we're, we're slowly working our way to and people are like, oh, I'm going to come to the architect's house. And we're like, no, no, you want to go see something we built. Right, yeah. <laughs> Right. We got to yeah. test everything at our own house. So I know some of this stuff uh, was a learning experience for you. As you said, it was, it was your capstone yeah. project for, for Mark's glass. And so yeah. you, you knew that there could be some things that you were not going to know how to do um, when, when you got to this. Right. Right. Um, and this is our showroom too. You know, people come to this building to sit at our dining room table and talk to us about their building projects. And so, I mean, there was definitely an element of, you know, maybe we turn the dial up on this thing and show some show people some tilt turn windows as an option. You know, um, we'll we'll live with them and we'll be able to report on all the things that we did and how that all worked out every time we meet with someone. Um, and it's it's true, people are always just amazed by the windows. They're also amazed by the net area of glazing in this building. You know, which is something Bob really helped with in, sh in sizing these, stretching them, making them a bit taller. Um, you know. Um, getting all of that together was something I wouldn't have dared make them quite so tall, I guess. Um, and they're not really that tall, but still people walk in and they're like, wow, window envy is what is, is often you know, like, wow, I wish I had a window like that over my kitchen sink. Um, um, yes. Yeah. So Bob, weigh in a little bit on that one. Um, this is one of the things I love uh, doing with you and working with you on is proportion is, you know, it's so critical to get the proportions right. And so a lot of times people will argue with you and, and you'll be like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm looking at a, a drawing here of Dylan's house and there's a whole bunch of window dimensions. So head height for those big front windows, um, you can see in the left-hand picture there, living room windows, dining room windows, seven foot, eight and three quarters head height. So it was like a eight foot six uh, ceiling height on the first floor, which feels, you know, you typically a house would have seven, six or eight feet, but eight, just adding that extra six inches is huge. Um, but you do have to bring the windows up that and you don't want the window sill to be so high that when you're sitting down, you can't see the ground. You can't feel connected to the land. Um, so, yeah, you end up with a six and a half foot tall window in that wall. And then you balance the exterior proportions because we were going for very traditional proportions here. Traditional trim, you know, the whole works. We busted it a little bit with uh, um, putting that center window in the dining room. All this, so you have the, this very regular New England Cape spacing, but with one extra window in there, which sort of tells the person looking at this that this is uh, maybe not an old house you know something's going on here yeah 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 um trim proportions i'll just jump in real quick and, and mention i remember on the south facade there was some discussion about the eight foot six ceiling height and then stretching the windows making them actually longer 
taller because there is no standard size in Europe. You can get whatever you want. And then I was concerned because we had raised the knee wall height. I was concerned about the, the south facade, which is sort of the one that faces the, dom the roadside, being a little kind of high eyebrow, you know, sort of Tom Selleck. And so we, we had to kind of make sure we didn't get out of hand with this big chunk of wall above the windows. And Bob really nailed it. I think that's like the first version. Ellie and I were like, yeah, like that, right. Yeah, like, so it's not too tall. You know, it just feels right. You know, it looks like the neighbor's house. You ended up with a really tall front door. I did end up with a very tall, I have a pair of those. They're very tall. Yeah, they're heavy. But. <laughs> now, how often do you use this door? That one, a lot in the summer, actually. We step out and the stoops really are, are still not finished. I have not really finished that work yet, but of course the builder's house. But um, we, step out <laughs> walk, we step out and walk out on the lawn in the evening, you know, um, and uh, sit on the step at the end of the day. And the side door, the other, the other, the door on the east facade, um, and one of the other slides, uh, it heads out to. Um, did, I, did I give you that slide? Yeah, it may have been the first one. I was gonna say I might only have this one. Okay. Uh, oh, here we go. Yeah, side right. Door. Okay. So now there's a lot more going on on this side. Now there's a um, vegetable garden and picnic table, and we grill. And there's and our intention is to have a deck out here. So this one gets used a lot. Uh, we ended up with a, a, a roll away screen door, which is a good fit for this kind of a, a house, but uh, for that kind of a door, but it's a little bit of a clunky mechanism. I think I'd look elsewhere next time I bought one of those, but. Yeah. So um, what's your favorite part about this house and why you think it's a pretty good house? Um, well, it, it's just sort of encompasses everything. I think the pretty good house is, you know, I, I I did a bunch of freshening up on, on PGH blogs on Green Building Advisor and started listening to some back shows of BS and beer. And I, I uh, kind of refamiliarized myself with all the key key points. I think it's just, it's all of these things. It's, it's, it's a simple building. It's a simple shape. It's really easy to air seal. It's a quick, it's a quick construct. Um, you know, you're in and out pretty fast. If we had actually built this house start to finish uninterrupted and not gone off and build and been building other people's houses as, as general, as general contractors do. Um, well, I'm meaning I had to do that <laughs> so that I could afford to build my own house, but um, it's, uh, it's really straightforward. Um, you know, it's just sort of got it. It's got, all, it's got everything that it needs. It's got it where it counts, but it's not, um, it's, you know, it's uncomplicated and it's not, it's not over. I don't think it's overdoing it in any way. Uh, that I can see. And it's not really underdoing it either. It's just sort of a, a good middle ground. Yeah, which is a great part of pretty good house, right? Is, is, you know, sure, you can build a super complicated, really expensive, you know, living building challenge house. Um, yeah. Or you can still legally build code houses. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there are so many reasons to kind of get I mean, really, you're almost at net zero or you, you know, you were 50, would you say 52 kilowatts off of net zero on this, on this simple build. It has right. more than enough space for the two of you and what you're doing and two businesses that both work from home, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the space layout works great that you, you know, you came to Bob and said, Hey, this is what we have, what we need. He helped you finesse it a little bit and it works great for your family, you know, and how you want to use it and feel, um, it looks to me like you have a wood stove, um, in this house. 
We, we don't actually. And so that's, that's a little bit of a trick. We, we could, and we, I think we had Bob help us figure out where one would go. And that's that, uh, hence the chimney that's sticking out of the, uh, uh, the roof that's not connected to anything. So my thought was, if we ever decided we wanted to do that for backup or auxiliary heat, we still could, but let's get that work done where before it becomes really difficult and impossible to do later. So we had it, uh, the chimney fitted through the steel roofing, through the attic, and then detailed through the, um, the flat uh, ceiling upstairs. And so I can get to it with a ladder on the, in the second floor ceiling and finish that work. It would be a long weekend to get the stovepipe connected down and, and a hole drilled through the floor <laughs> to get a stove brought in here, but it, would, it's, it, it wouldn't be calling four different subtrades back to, to get the job done. Right. But after hearing that you've lived in this house for two years and that it's more than comfortable with, with what you have, um, have you ever felt the need to put one in? And do you really think that at this point you would be overheating your entire space by oh, using a wood stove? It would be, a, it would be absurdly, it, the, it would be such a bad fit for this building. Um, there's really nowhere to put it where you wouldn't like burst into flames there's you know there's nowhere to go where you can get far enough away from a wood stove they don't make one small enough for buildings like this for one i think you know it was a, part of the reason we went for this is that it was a little bit of like local pressure you know sort of like peer pressure really you know, like boy you really ought to just at least put something in or what if i think maybe there was this like well what if the grid becomes really unreliable in the future and we want to have a wood stove to to heat through, you know, bizarre weather events if they become more regular, you know, ice storms that knock lines down for weeks and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't know. It was a, it was a, it was an extra couple of thousand dollars to goof around with the stovepipe, um, you know, the 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 metal, uh, the double wall chimney, um, for kind of peace of mind. I don't think either of us ever intend to use it. To be honest with you, I mean, it's not on our radar, and we certainly don't need it. Um, the, the one thing I would say about comfort and heat in this building is that, um, my, you know, my father, who's like an old firewood guy and wood stove guy, I just said, no, that's not going to work. You know, your house isn't going to work. Where are you going to come in from a cold day of working outside as a builder and warm up? I'm like, oh, no, he's right. You know, you need to go stand next to a wood stove to get warm. Well, actually, you don't. It turns out you can come into a building that's really comfortably warm everywhere you go and dry with nice air quality. And turns out that's comfortable it doesn't take extremes. The ones that we grew up with, you know, where you it's like a bazillion degrees over here and then it's 40 in the side bedroom with like icicles hanging on the inside of the set. Turns out that that's uncomfortable. So um, dad was wrong. Um, it's really comfortable because it's even temperature throughout and not just the air, it's the materials, it's the thermal mass, the walls, the flooring, you know, everything is roughly the same temperature everywhere you go. Um, that's what makes a building comfortable. So the wood stove, the wood stove is so much more about um, kids and their snowsuits and all their stuff that needs to dry and yeah. their ski boots. Yeah, um, that's what I find. That and the power outages. You know, in my house. Yes, it's my entire heat source. Right. I need to keep it blasting all long. Yeah. So yeah. how how often have you lost power uh, at the house since you built it? And um, do you have a battery backup or uh, do you just sort of lose power and it doesn't lose enough heat to be uncomfortable? So that's a great, I'm glad you got to this. 
I, I have a generator, but it's, it's, a, um, it's a gasoline generator um, and it's a large enough one to run the whole house on um, that I bought um, to back up uh, um, new building sites, to start up new building sites. And uh, so it would power this house and I have the pedestal set up so I could plug that in and run this house that way if I wanted to. Um, that has never happened. So we have not needed to use our auxiliary heat for sub-zero events to insulate us, uh, you know, to help out the heat pumps when they are not functioning. And we have not had outages that lasted long enough to, to warrant that whole system when we don't have any battery backup. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's such a great house. <laughs> so no. I really appreciate you, you sharing it with us. You know, I think it really epitomizes the pretty good house in Vermont, right? So this is a, this is a New England style house. It's a, it's a cape in its style. It's a high performance house where you just said, well, we lost power, but it never really got cold enough for it to be an issue that I needed to plug in my generator that I have, you know, and that, you know, the wood stove that you plan for isn't necessary and that the single source mini split more than covers all of the different spaces with some auxiliary heat for very specific uses um, in spaces. And I think the one thing mechanically that we didn't talk about was um, you have either an HRV or an ERV in here that's doing your fresh air exchange because at 0.32 ACH, uh, it's tight. <laughs> it's tight. It is. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's about the bare, most bare bones setup you can get, I think, for whole house ventilation. It's a Baron 160TE and it's pushing fresh air into all the living and um, sleeping spaces and pulling stale out of, as a stale out of the kitchen, stale out of the basement, both bathrooms, and then a boost button. So, you know, not to pick on, not to pick on zenders, they're, I'm sure they're amazing, but they cost twice as much as this system did. And I'm sure they're, they're great, but not really seeing that this building needs it. Um, I think what we're doing, so, Two of the things that I've been learning how to do is not let this building overheat. And I know how to do that now. And the other thing is not overventilate, which is really easy to do also. The first winter we were overventilating. It got a little too dry in here because, and I think what folks, a lot of folks don't understand is that when you're uh, kicking um, uh, a, a bunch of air out of your house, you're pulling in the winter time, the, uh, the air is much drier that you're, that you're bringing back in to replace that air, that fresh air. And so it tends to get dry. I got to about 18 or 19% in here for, you know, a few weeks. Ooh, ouch, you know, just not comfortable. There's another way a building can be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. And so turning the, turning the HRV down to, uh, uh, you know, 20 minutes per hour, I actually reset the speed range to the lowest range possible. If we had two kids and a couple of dogs, probably wouldn't have gotten that, that dry in here because there would have been a lot more human action. Yeah. And you, you might find that, you know, if you, if you had more individuals, maybe an ERV, right. So it got a little too dry with the HRV. Right. Um, that's actually something that I talked with a mechanical engineer about. They had an HRV, they actually had a Zender. Um, uh -huh. They had an HRV in and it was so dry and they called Zender and said, can you send us an ERV core? And they were like, it literally instantly 
made a huge difference for them, but they have kids and dogs and other things, right? So they needed the increase in ventilation that, that you don't, don't need with just the two of you. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of that interesting play between HRV and ERV and the reminder that, you know, yeah, it can be too dry in these cold climates and the wintertime conditions. Um, right. We put in Brone ERVs all the time for the exact reason that you just said is they're half the cost. And if they're ducted, uh, well and correctly, they work really well. Um, yeah. and so my question, and I scrolled back to the plan for anybody who's watching this or looking at it, the video is how did you get the ductwork for the ERV from the basement to the second floor in the spaces? So what, what's your, you know, you, you have, uh, a couple of LVLs in this, in the framing plan, um, mm -hmm located how did you get from from the basement do you have chases do you have walls that are thicker do you just have thinner ductwork because the system is really small thinner ductwork is part of it um and so i think let's see there's a wall i think the office wall right behind me has got a lot of stuff in it so this is a wall that brings a lot of stuff up in the basement which is yep exactly yep you found it that's a, I think that's a six inch wall. So that's carrying some plumbing drains. The um, drain water heat recovery uh, device is in this wall from the shower, which is right above me. Um, and so there's some ducting there. Um, we also use uh, open web floor uh, joists, which are spendy, but worth it because you get to easily cram a lot of stuff in there. So think about it, folks, you've got a double, double two by four wall. And um, joists you don't have to drill through. Your subcontractors love you. And especially if you get a nice electric salamander, they'll come work on your job any time of the year. You'll be first on their list. So this is something that I have learned. They always go, Dylan's got heat and there's a lot less drilling. <laughs> um, so it's really easy to move things around um, in a building that's got a lot of places to move things into. Um, yeah, I use open web framing a lot. And um, yeah. it, it's sort of the joke because in the design world, uh, the mechanical people always seem to be the last people to the table and have the fewest amount of options to get to anything. And so I right. joked with the, the gentleman that does all of my ERV installs and he's like, you do better than you think you do. And I was like, oh, it's just all that open web framing. I made your life easy. Um, <laughs> but that is, that is a design tip. And so one of the ideas on pretty good house is that you have this, you know, you have a team of people and whether your design team is the builder or whether you, the homeowner or the design team, or whether you have an architect or designer on your thing. Um, you know, something that Bob and I do a lot and we'll, I'll, I'll be clear here. Bob's way better than I am <laughs> this, um, is doing those things where you can stack um, your plumbing chases together. You've got less plumbing runs. You've got hot water sooner, you know, you're not wasting a bunch of water to get hot water, which, you know, in Vermont and Maine, we don't, um, we don't have water shortages like some of the other parts of the country, but there are other parts of the country where you just don't want to run the water for three minutes to get hot water. It's just a bad idea. Um, but you know, here you would not have to run it forever till you get hot water. But also too, if you can group your mechanical systems below that, you can make one wall a little bit wider, a two by six or a two by eight wall, and you can run a lot of chases through that. And so 
um, you know, having a good design team that layers the plans on top of each other and says, well, if we scoot this wall over three inches, it all lines up from the top to the bottom. And we can use that as a chase, right? Because yep. nothing worse than the toilet sitting on top of the LVL, or there's no way to get the ERV from the basement to the second floor, or, um, you know, the, the hot water tank is on the complete opposite side of the basement from all of the plumbing runs. Right. Yeah. That's one mistake that I did. I did end up making. And, and in retrospect, I don't know how I made this mistake, but the water heater is definitely too far away from the shower. I could move it, but it's also really close to the kitchen. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. Which one am I going to use more? Well, you kind of want hot instantaneous more frequently at the kitchen. So it's really close and it comes really fast there, but it's sort of a long ride to get to the shower. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, try telling um, your new client that you, she, you know, not she, they, they can't have their bathroom on that corner of the house because you don't want to put a circulation loop in like, See what kind of success you're going to have with that argument. I mean, I'll try. I've tried, but yeah, <laughs> I usually have to pick my battles, you know. Right. We all do. We all yeah. do. So, so Bob, from your perspective, is there anything that you would have done differently um, in, in the overall design process? I mean, you acted as a consultant. You started working with a plan that they had already set, which um, from, from my perspective looks pretty good. So uh, you, you clearly had a lot of knowledge going into it you know, ahead of time, uh, Dylan. Um, but I know you're changing some of your techniques. This is a double stud wall that's 12 inches. Um, Anything that you would have said, oh, well, two years later, we're doing X, Y, or Z? Oh, good question. And I really don't remember what for a floor plan Dylan came with. So I, 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 I'm not even sure what I did. I know I, I slipped in my ideal kitchen and sold that to him <laughs> at some point here. Yep. Um, it, I mean, the whole process is with this house in particular, it's not problem solving it's problem avoidance and so you know the dormer that didn't happen that's a whole set of detailing and 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 potential problems that he didn't have to deal with um and some cost savings as well um so yeah i, I don't <laughs> nothing to add <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect to build this again. So, so my next question then to you, Dylan, is um, you said to us that you uh, you placed it sort of ostentatiously. We, we wanted it to look like it it blended in. Now I'm looking at this photo going, this looks traditional Vermont to me. It looks like you're in the middle of nowhere. There are some beautiful mountains in the background. Um, but you, you must have placed it where people can see it. Did you have people driving by all the time going, hey, I want one of those? Or what are you doing here? Why is this different? <laughs> right. Well, I liked um, what Bob said about the uh, <clears throat> the triple gang windows on the above the sink and around the dining room table. That when you people drive by, I think there's a little hint of this looks like a building that it's been here for a long time, but I'm not sold on that. I think it's newer. You know, it, there's something about that's it not. It's a little little different. Um, it it is up away from the road, about 300 feet. 320 feet. There's actually an L in this neighborhood. And what you're not seeing is if you turn about 180 degrees from this vantage point, 
Uh, that's Mount Mansfield, Vermont's tallest mountain behind us. And that is way further away than it looks. I don't know why, it, it looks like it's in my backyard, but it's not. Um, anyway, uh, so there's, there's a lot of road frontage that, you, that is visible from the house, but far enough away that it's not intrusive. And so people can see the house from two separate roads as they drive into this little village. And there's a little intersection down here. And there are several houses within view of this, of our house that are shaped like this building. So they can see us and we can see them. And it sort of look, it, so it, it fools you a little bit in that, you know, it does look like it's been here for a while. And then in some cases, in some ways it doesn't in that, you know, it, it doesn't look like a barnyard. There isn't, you know, a farmhouse with a barnyard would not probably be sitting this far away from the road for one. There's a couple of tips in there that, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a nod. It's a hats off to the, to the neighborhood houses that I grew up admiring. Um, yeah. Well, and I think you could almost wonder if it's new and meant to look traditional in style, or if it's old and you've renovated it, right. And you sort of updated to, you know, I can't tell you how many renovations we've done where people have an existing home, but they want it to be all open concept. Well, you know, when you have a whole bunch of different little windows and different rooms, you know, open concept, well, now you can have a bigger window because there's not a wall in between here. And so it does kind of make you go, huh, well, wait, is, is that new? Is, is that renovated? Is, is that right. old? I, I don't know. Um, Cause it has yeah. such a great traditional classic style to it. Yeah. It, it's, it's visible from, from many spots in this little village that it's in. So that was the part that I was sensitive to. I didn't want to, um, there's, I didn't want to have it up on the highest point of the land at all. There was no need to do that. Um, it's about a midpoint um, on the lot. We cut no trees to build this house. We had a small opening in the uh, to the road that was already established that hay wagons used to go through. Uh, the power, you can actually see the um, um, the transformer that we get power from behind the house. That's on the neighbor's property and is about a hundred feet from the house. So just about kind of everything about this lot and the orientation for solar were all totally ideal and about the most cost-effective spot to plop a house in this whole neighborhood that I can think of. Um, but I didn't want it to stick out like a sore thumb, you know, because it was something new in town. So I was really sort of sensitive to that. I didn't want it to, I was like, well, I can do new in town, but I don't want it to look really odd either, either, you know, so, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. Um, this is a is a wonderful house that um, I'm really happy that you shared with us. I think it meets a lot of the pretty good house ideals. It talked about how you built it and what you did. You've lived in it now for two years, and so you can you go on. Um, when you meet with clients at the at the table, they all say, "I want this. <laughs> I want what you did here." Yeah, yeah so. several have, uh, several have, and. Um... It's a great, it's a really, what I like about uh, PGH um, conceptually and this building fitting into that is that to me, it's the, it's the sweet spot. Um, and so people are standing inside of it and going, oh, and they're learning about a little bit, a little bit about the equipment and really nice finishes, but not crazy over the top and not super budget either. It's just sort of like a good mix of everything right in the middle um, performance wise and not difficult to, to achieve either. And I think, um, 
makes it reachable to people who have sort of ordinary budgets. And I say that carefully because I don't really know what that means other than like, I want new buildings and housing to be reachable to working class people. And I think this is where PGH really comes in, uh, really slide, can slide into home plate if it's, if it's executed well, is that um, there are people out there who don't have enough money to build a new house, any kind of new house, period. And we sometimes meet those folks and that's always a bummer to realize that. But um, I think this is reachable. I think this kind of a building is reachable to folks who, who, uh, to folks who have a budget um, to build new. And, um, and it's not much more than the, the buildings that we're, that we're talking about that are the worst building that you're legally allowed to build in this country. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that much more to build a really good building, so. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, some of those traditional things, which is, you know, keep it simple, cut down on your mechanicals, you know, oh. doing all of those things really makes that achievable for, for people. Um, were there any last details in this that you said, well, that was really hard and you've come up with a new way to do things in the last two years that you've done on projects since then? Um, um, <clears throat> I would say basement optional. You know, the only reason I went for a basement was that, well, there were two. There was, um, I wasn't so sure we were going to do a garage or anytime soon. I knew I wanted a little workspace downstairs to do projects and things. Um, we're high and dry on ledge here. And I also know how to build a basement and not the kind that gets, still gets built in my neighborhood, which are wrong in many details and wet and gross and cold and everything, you know, where the monsters live. Um, so I was pretty confident we would be okay with the basement, but I would say basement optional, bulkhead, eh, forget that. N not much point in doing that. Um, as far as construction details, um, I don't know. You know, I, I'm probably a few years behind the game in, and I'd like to learn more about what you guys are doing for wall systems. I think this wall system is just so simple. Um, it's just a really simple way to get there without, um, uh, climbing around on the outside of the building too much more. I think that really slows the process down, which was one of the reasons I stayed with the, the approach uh, that I used on insulating the roof. It just seemed like we were done and off the roof fast and it was the roofers project. And from then on, we could work inside on any kind of weather day and wrap up all the stuff. You know, actually Ellie and I were here uh, in November with a drywall lift, putting all the plywood on as the air barrier on the ceiling upstairs. Um, so on a weekend, you know, it was like, it's, it's, it's much easier to do that than climb around on the roof with, with like foam board and, and, you know, screws this long, you know? Yeah, so I think keeping simple concepts is really a, a key, right? So the double stud wall is literally just two of the same you know, the same wall, right? It's really easy yeah. for people to understand. Yeah, um, I still do a lot of double stud walls. I know Bob's moving into some more modified Larson truss type yeah. framing. Yeah. Um, cool though. yeah. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting how that's changing. I mean, I think prior to 2020 and 2021, double stud wall was really easy for people to understand. It was pretty easy for them to figure out how to do their air barrier and how to do it well. Um, yep. And it was cost effective. Now, I don't know, with studs being $7 a stud, it's a little bit less cost effective in yep. the double stud market. And so it's kind of interesting to see like, okay, well, what, what do we have to do? And, you know, in your case, you expanded the footprint a little bit because you needed a little bit more space in the Larson truss where you only have a two by four 
more on the inside, you don't have all 12 inches on the inside. Do you get that extra space simply right. in the same footprint um, right. by going out a little bit instead of in a little bit or the whole whole thing expanding? So it's this whole push pull idea of like, how yeah. do we approach that? And yeah. there are so many ways to build a pretty good house. And this is still a great way to do it. And like mm -hmm. you said, um, you know, you, you went and you took the classes. So this was a great way for you to use the skills you already kind of knew how to do mm -hmm. in a slightly different way. And I always ask builders this, um, to, to quantify now, this was your own house, but you know, to get to 0.32 ACH 50, mm -hmm. you, you, you spent time air sealing, making sure all of those little details were, were done, but it's your house. So yeah, you probably yeah. can't quite quantify how long that took you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, using the, this it's in defense of a, a rigid air barrier and using the exterior sheeting in this wall system as the air barrier and carrying it, being able to trace it across the plan without lifting your pencil off the page is really, really easy in a building that is a simple form. And so we taped the plywood. We made our own zip wall out of uh, half inch CDX pine and followed it all the way through. And you really can't miss, you know, it's not, there's not a lot of, there's some awkward corners. There's always some weird spots, but, and you know, the first time I did one of these buildings, I used way too much tape. I mean, there's no, no doubt, you know, that we were taping things a couple extra times, you know, you got to do that, right? So you got to blow through in a whole nother box of 20 from, from, uh, from uh, four, seven, five before you realize, whoa, you know? And so now what we do to, what we figured out how to like not do that is we do more blower door tests. So uh, tomorrow, actually my buddy who's an energy auditor is coming to our current job to test that one layer of tape and plywood. Let's see where we're at first. Did we get it? Great, do we have to keep going? Probably not, you know? Until people start drilling a bunch of holes in our work and then we'll have to go check it again and again. But so a <laughs> minimum of three tests probably. One, when you first dry it in, check that out. Um, and then, then you can maybe shave off a box of 20 tests on it, you know, van uh, uh, of tape, you know, maybe. <laughs> it's gonna take you a few houses though to get to, get to that point. <laughs> That's really great to know that for all the builders who are listening that you too can get there eventually. <laughs> you, can. you can. We were kind of amazed at some of our first blower door numbers. Um, the first house we did wasn't that good. It was a little bit more of a challenge. It had a wood stove and some other challenges, but um, we've had a, a several that have been um, in the 0.5 range, which I'm thinking is like, man, if you can get below one, you're doing great. Leave it alone. That's good enough. Um, yeah, I mean, eight. you're starting to split hairs then, right? When you're down with PGH, once you get below one. Um, yeah, yeah. You totally are. You totally are. You know, I, I don't think it's worth, it's definitely not worth another box of 20 rolls to shave off 0.2. You know, I don't think we, we, we had some fun with like tapes and caulks and things with the blower door running. We go, I put a piece of tape up and go, okay, Mark, you know, what did that do? You know, like to that, to that level, just to find out. I was like, well, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. When, when you've got that good, um, I, I think uh, you don't have to keep going probably, you know, yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Any last words on pretty good house or this house from either Ooh. of you? <laughs> Bob, I talked too much. Do you want to say something? Oh no, I'm just sitting back and letting this, this is your show. I'm just uh, <laughs> stepping in where I needed. 
Okay. He's just here for the show. Well, I really appreciate you sharing this with uh, with us today, um, both on the Pretty Good House front, but um, we have a lot of um, non-traditional looking, you know, passive house style or really modern style. And so, yeah, Bob with his super modern and then really traditional, right? And so you can do it either way, which I think is, um, it's really important because um, unfortunately, I think in the overall industry at large, people think that in order to have a really efficient house, you have to have something that's not attractive, right? Because not all styles are attractive to everybody. And here you've really proven like you can take a cape and you can make it a pretty good house. I mean, you can make it a net zero house. You can make it, I mean, you have, uh, aside from the foam on your walls in the basement and uh, under the slab, you you don't have any foam in your upper structure. So your carbon storing with your cellulose, with the wood that you have, um, you know, you've done a lot of things here to, to push towards those, you know, low carbon homes as well. So, um, and, and you did it with a traditional structure. So it's completely possible to do it with probably any style that you want. So totally. We have a, a few in our, um, repertoire that are, are from the street look like just standard ranch houses with six, 12 pitches that are truss roofs. And it does not get easier uh, than, than uh, you know, air sealing a shoebox. There's just no way for it to be an easier job. There's just four corners, maybe six. Um, and you tape every seam and you do a blower door test and see where you're at. And it's always really close to where you wanna go. So yeah, the adaptability is totally there. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to say, and I think it had to do with, um, oh, geez, I, I lost my train of thought, but um, yeah, reachable, having it be reachable um, and having it be, um, oh, I know what it is. It was that um, people that are having houses built have a lot of decisions to make and are frequently kind of getting ready to be get overwhelmed. And I think if the process itself and the energy nerd part of it is digestible and um you know, may, they don't, you, clients don't usually need extra things to be stressed out about and trying to achieve some, a really tough to reach goal is just like one more thing that may not be worth it for uh, several reasons. And one of them is just kind of, you know, is, is wearing people out, you know, <laughs> having, letting people wear themselves out with a goal that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. I'm not, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Some, you, you said two really great things there at the end. The first one was, you know, about taping a shoebox, which is, which is, you know, really clear in, in the metaphor. Uh, Jesper talked about it on the BS and beer show last Thursday, as he said, it's the difference between trying to, to tape a rake and trying to tape a rake in a box right? That's already put in a box, right? So every time we have all these jogs and these things and Bob talked you out of the dormer, I mean, can you imagine having to tape all of the different bumps and everything in the dormer and then it's in the roof and it pokes a hole and right? So every time we add all of these extra holes and spaces to it, we're just creating more, more difficult things to, to handle. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, the, the approachability, right, is um, I do a community project and it's a ranch and the homeowners build it themselves and they dense pack their own walls. And there's, there's, 
you know, there doesn't have to be a huge learning curve there. But at the same time, I like the idea of saying like, this is my envelope. You can do whatever you want on the inside, but this is my envelope. So it's just one less thing that you have to worry about because you're not going to see it afterwards. And it's going to be the thing that has the biggest impact on your health and how you feel in your house. So let's talk about your comfort, your safety, the dirt, you know, I say durability, but even homeowners don't want to talk about the durability, right? You could just package that in a like callbacks or having to fix things, right? You use traditional, traditional words is, you know, um, you hired me to give you the best house that you can get and you want to be really comfortable here. And these are the things that I think you should do that should just not be taken off the table. And then if there's money left, let's really soup up some, you know, the kitchen or the bathroom or whatever, because you could have a really, um, you'd have a really beautiful kitchen or really beautiful house. I talked to a real estate agent a couple of years ago who said, you know, I built this million dollar house. This was a couple of years ago when a million dollars went farther than it does now. But, but I, you know, I built this million dollar house and it was so cold and it was so awful to live in it that we sold it after the first year. And then we went and we found an architect who could help us to build a high performance home because we spent all this money for this beautiful thing. And it was just awful to live in. Um, And I think that's the that's the one reminder that we have to give to people is, you know, you, you, you have hired us as the professionals to help you get there within a budget that you can afford to spend. And here's how you'll be comfortable in it. And it's going to, you know, we're, we're building legacy homes. We're not building disposable homes at this point. So, so I, I, I love this. I hope all your neighbors drive by and go, Oh, I wish my Cape was as as high performance as that. <laughs> no, I, I love everything that you just said. You know, that's, it's so huge. Um, we, we so frequently talk to people who have difficulty forcing themselves to even enroll their projects with Efficiency Vermont because they just don't need one more thing to worry about. And it isn't just the clients, it's the builders that don't have the experience also. So there's a lot of like builder buy-in and education that are crucial to this whole program. Uh, because if the builder acts stressed out and doesn't know or sort of says, oh, God, I don't know about all that energy stuff, blah, blah, you know, and it just seems makes it seem like this difficult, not uh, not reachable thing, then people give up on it, you know, and we do we have a little offering on our website that's called that's uh, that is uh, owner builder support. And what I'm trying to do is catch my hippie friends from screwing up their houses before they build them. Because around here, people still like to build their own houses. And I think that's great, but they often call me when it's way too late to put insulation under their slab or something silly like that. And so I just wanted to get it out there. I will come and help you make sure that, like you said, I, I love that program, Emily, that you, you know, let's get the envelope right. And from there, you can timber frame away or do whatever you're gonna do, but let's make sure there's an air barrier in here. Let's make sure there's generous amounts of insulation, good, cheap, um, carbon friendly, you know, carbon storing insulation in this building. And then, you know, it's not hard. It's not hard. So the accessibility is a huge factor, you know, and approachability was the word that you used, which I think is more important. If people think of this as some out of reach, uh, cost wise, uh, out of reach, time wise, effort wise, worry wise program, it's never going to, it just isn't going to reach the, the level that it, it needs to. someday this is going to be the code level that's what we're yeah well and codes are getting 
better and stricter in different places. I know you don't have a building code, but you have an energy code or something like that. Maine does, Maine has a building code, but we're still using the 2009 energy code, right? And so things are, you know, then you look at New York and they've got the, I think they have 2018 plus a stretch code, right? So there are different things in different parts of the country and it's getting better. And unfortunately, one thing that I feel like is the building science stuff isn't approachable, but there are materials that are readily available and um, people are, um, as Sonia had said to me, violating the laws of physics, right? <laughs> where does the water go? Where does the vapor go? Where does, you know, where's all this stuff happening? Right. And are we creating issues because we've made it so that people feel like it's not approachable to learn, right? Uh -huh. It's not approachable to learn how to do this. Like, how do we do the builder hands-on training that you took, you know, the passive house builder training, and you got to put your hands on things and use the tape and see that it sticks to literally everything or nothing or whatever. And so yeah. there's just so much that I think pretty good house is really trying to be the approachable method to to doing a little bit better with what you have and that there's not a metric that you have to hit that requires you to you know use complicated things or do things you wouldn't otherwise do it's sort of this plug and play system that helps you to evaluate how to do it better so um yeah. so i appreciate yeah. you sharing your project uh and how you did that well, thank you. I'm flattered and I'm glad to help. And uh, uh, this is really close to my, you know, I, uh, you know, um, just kind of school of thought, I guess I, I would say um, I'm kind of on the northern terminus of where I do business and live. I don't I don't get out into the further reaches of the Northeast Kingdom much with business and commerce and building. And um, there's a definite southerly pull for our the kind of work that we're doing. Um, so it's a interesting demographic. It's a depressed area. And um, I, I, I have wondered whether, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on some sort of a frontier. There doesn't seem to be many people around uh, north of me doing, trying to do what I'm doing here. And I've questioned it at times, you know, I thought, well, am I just, am I just doing too much? Is this too much for most people? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just the word hasn't gotten out. It hasn't spread. Everyone's got an uncle that was a builder that knows better. You know, my dad was one of those guys. You know, he's going, oh, he thinks I'm out of my mind, right? But now that he comes into my house, he's like, oh, oh, it worked. Hmm. Okay, well, interesting, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I love, you gotta love that, right? So yeah. it's like, oh, that's never gonna work. Oh, hey, hey, that worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> so it's gonna take some time. Um, it'll take some lumber yards to, uh, coming around to helping us by not offering st stupid pr uh, uh, products that don't make any sense and also perpetuating bad building science. There's tons of that around. If I could just quit do being a builder, I could find some time to go um, run around and straighten out the supply chain in my area. That would help a lot because builders are showing up totally exhausted and trying to get a job done so they can get paid or whatever it is that their situation demands. And uh, they're showing up at the lumber yard and buying whatever's on the shelf and slapping it up. And, you know, so they don't have a lot of time to do the work that I did um, to figure out how to do it better. And I, I can totally respect that. I, I can totally respect that. I understand how this keeps going this way because people are overburdened, you know, builders have a lot on their shoulders a lot, uh, um, in many cases. So it's a little bit of everything got to help each other out. Yeah. 
And you, you said something, well, a couple of things there. I would love to, I would love for every lumberyard to have a building science person that reviews every like major, major uh, material list that goes out, you know, to help people out. Um, but BS and beer and uh, the pretty good house go, go pretty well together. Uh, one, because it started at our local discussion group. Um, the, that was where Pretty Good House was born, uh, yeah. where we would get together and we would talk about these things. So I'm really excited about the advent of both the BS and Beer Show, making those discussions available to people all over the country um, and even outside of the United States, um, but also spurning people to start their own groups as, as hopefully our country will transition back into getting together in person. Because um, I remember one where Mike and I uh, Mike puts on the BS and beer show, uh, in Liberty. And the topic was, you know, water control layers or water resistive barriers, however you want to, uh, to term that, that level. And there were several builders who came who said, well, how do I know what's the right thing to use? Right. And mm -hmm. they're like, well, if I walk into the lumber yard, they're just going to sell me whatever they have on the shelf that's available, right? And that's not always the right answer. Sometimes that's perfectly fine. It might be the right product, right? but sometimes it might not be. And we're not taking that extra step to say, well, wait, what do we have here? What do we have for insulation? How thick is this wall? Where's it going to go? What's it going to be attached to? What's going to go over it? What's, you know, yeah. do you have a rain screen, et cetera? And so um, everyone always hates it. Like, well, how do I know what's the right thing? And we say, it depends. It depends. <laughs> I know it's a hard answer. I, right. and I, I've said this to our, to my crew too. We shouldn't, us, us on the crew shouldn't know more than the guy that's selling us stuff down in Hardwick, but we do. And I shouldn't know more than the HVAC guys that I just interviewed last week, but I do. Um, it's catching, it's going to catch up, but it's going to catch up. And I'm not saying I'm surrounded by people who don't know what they're doing. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that I um, know a little bit more and it's about something slightly different and, but, but not really. And um, it's out there. And there are a group of builders in my community who are totally on it and totally get it. But the majority is not that. And, and it's just a self-perpetuating thing, the lumber yard and the old school mentality and the, Guys like my own father who are like, that's never going to work. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, it does actually come, come yep. to our project. And so, yeah, yeah, it's a whole, it's a, it's, a, it's the whole program. That's, that's, it's going to seep into the whole program for this to work. Yeah. Um, it was sort of a joke, the other, uh, a joke, but yet important. Um, the other week we were on um, talking with Dave Willie on, uh, and um, sorry, not Dave, Mark Willie and Dave Cooper. Mm -hmm. Well, way to put those two together uh, on BS Friday. And uh, there was somebody in the chat box who's like, can I sign up all my homeowners for this class? And I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, there needs to be a pretty good house homeowner class, right? Yeah. The, it's like a thing. If you're going to yeah. build a house, you should take the pretty good house homeowner class, right? And it's just, yeah. it doesn't have to be really in-depth and really sciencey and really whatever. It just has to be a little bit of knowledge about what you're getting with a house, um, you know, and, and this reminder that, you know, your house is never maintenance free, no matter what you put on it, it's not maintenance free. That's not a thing. Totally. Yep, there, that's not a thing. <laughs> there are simple decisions that you can make, but uh, there are also zero tolerance houses, which are impossible to do. So don't say I just want this simple thing because sometimes simple equals zero tolerance. And those two things are not the same. Right. Uh -huh. uh, sometimes the fussy details 
are how we make two things connect together. Uh -huh. <laughs> that needs to happen. Right. right. So yeah. I mean, just kind of some of these really, really simple ways to 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 talk about it, to get people the comfort, the health, the safety, and that they have no idea what's in in their homes. Um, right. You know, my favorite thing in seminars is to ask people how many people have been in their attic, right? And right. it's 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 good that the number is usually low because I don't want people to go in the attic, right? That's to be the last place. You are not allowed to store things up there. You shouldn't yeah. be in the insulation. Just stay right. out of the attic. Right. But at the same time, they haven't been in their attic. So they don't realize when they say house needs to breathe that house needs to dry. It doesn't need to breathe. And yeah. that the stuff coming from your attic, if you ever poked your head up there, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's gross. You would never want to breathe that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we could go down a whole tangent. And at this point I have to just quit or we will be here for, this will be the three hour pretty good house <laughs> podcast because you know the three of us I think could toss yeah. out ideas we're all drinking the kool-aid uh, oh, both okay. the pretty good house kool-aid and the high performance build it better build it safer build it healthier uh movement so again I appreciate you sharing your particular house on this one and Bob would like to say something so we're gonna let him I, now chime okay. in since so he's I been so quiet <laughs> I have one last thing to say. So I like how Dylan's going to be our first Pretty Good House instructor. And I like how Dylan has set himself up for the next phase in his career as a consultant. <laughs> I think by He's coming totally on the podcast, Dylan, you just, <laughs> you just got voluntold to, to do some new things. Oh, I, did, I did. That's great. That's a good new word to use also. Thank you for that. And, uh, <laughs> I love that word. I, I, I knew this was coming. You know, I just didn't know how I was going to snap into my next thing. And I was an instructor. Um, and uh, right. How to do that and keep it approachable. I'll leave it at that. How to keep, how to do that, how to show my peers in my, in the hood, um, that, it, that it's doable and how to do that in an approachable way. That's not, um, yeah, that's just, a, I'll just leave it at that approachable, approachable. Approachable. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where we all need to be going is how do we make pretty good house approachable, not just the standard, but the, the, the overall concept that you've bought into this idea. Yeah, totally. So. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you both coming on today and sharing your time and expertise with the people listening to the podcast or watching the video replay. So we'll uh, say goodbye to everybody and we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.